0: The Rwando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit Rwando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. Hello, friends. Today, we are speaking about physiological toughness. Uh, This is a topic I've I've mentioned in a few recent podcasts, uh, the hormonal and nervous system aspect of of toughness and um, it's been really fascinating to me, this this kind of research, um, because most of us think of toughness as a purely mental experience, right? It's it's a purely internal ethics, not something that's measurable, but actually uh, the truth is, it is something that's measurable and people's um, physiologies can determine how well they can deal with stress. So we're gonna speak about uh, various science things. Um, If you notice, if you're watching the live stream or the video uh, of this later, you'll see that I have a PowerPoint. Um, went full nerd on this one. I actually wasn't really planning on uh, doing a full PowerPoint. I figured I would make a couple slides uh, with all the definitions and stuff. But um, anyway, before I knew it, I had, I had completed a PowerPoint. So uh, that's that. If you are watching the live stream, I think we have a few minute delay. I'm going to try to come keep uh, checking back um, but I have a few windows open, so we'll see how this goes. And I'm going to sh- try to get my puppies to stop chewing on my desk. All right. Okay, before we jump in, a uh, couple announcements. Uh, we have a men's group this Sunday. Um, we've done a couple of these the la- in the last month. They've gone really well. Um, the one uh, this Sunday, it's free. It's, uh, it'll be 9 p.m sunday eastern time us eastern time new york time uh, they've been great uh, it's a great place to connect with like-minded guys to grow uh to get feedback on things and i think especially in the COVID era a lot of people are i don't want to say starving for connection i don't like the way that sounds but it's i mean it's important to connect with like-minded men to normalize the traits that you want to develop so if you want to check that out it's in the and underground facebook group um, info is in there If you are watching this later, um, and obviously if the date has passed, which would would be June 13th, 2021, um, I will put information on future men's group, men's groups on maskandunderground.com. All right, so jumping in. So one of the things that uh, brought up this topic for me and why I became interested in it um, was that if you do follow my stuff, I, I was in a cult a number of years ago. This cult more recently, about seven or eight months ago, was featured in a bbc documentary called the orgasm cults uh, if, if you're watching the video you can see there's a kind of embarrassing picture of me from when i was i think 24. i have big hippie hair hipster hippie hair i'm wearing a shirt this is powered by an orgasm uh sitting zazen in an orgasm nest want, want to explain that in this video it's beyond the scope of this video but um I, mean, I was featured in the documentary um i'm one of the more outspoken people who've come out of cults uh you know, I don't really have shame about it. I think it's a really interesting story. Um, but because I was, uh, I was one of the few people to use my real name and use my real voice, which I didn't realize was not an option, uh, a lot of the other people who spoke um, used the voice actors, which I thought was really weird. I shouldn't even listen to the episode, but it doesn't matter. Um, because of this, a lot of the ex uh, one tasters, ex cult members who I knew uh, reached out to me. These are people who, a lot of whom I haven't spoken with in years. Um, And it was nice to reconnect and, you know, we all have our war stories. Um, But what was really interesting to me is that a lot of these people are still super traumatized um, in a way that I wasn't expecting. Right. Because, you know, if if you caught my episodes on when I was in the matriarchal cult, I definitely was brainwashed to a degree. I definitely lost myself to a degree. and I definitely had a hard time for a year or two after leaving the cult. Definitely had a hard time at at points, but this was like six years ago now or or more than that. And I was really shocked that some of my friends were still like in the muck of things. And this is not to compare trauma or anything like that, everyone, uh, but it made made me think like, you know, there's some people who definitely experienced worse things than me as far as my perception can go. And I can kind of understand and what had a harder time leaving, or a harder time afterwards? Then there's some people also who, in my opinion, obviously it's my opinion, it's not a judgment, but uh, they didn't really go through that uh, difficult of stuff. Like, they, in my opinion, they didn't, they, you know, they didn't get as brainwashed as much. They didn't, they didn't do uh, things that would maybe that I would think would cause trauma so much. But they were just as traumatized. And from one level, I was like, okay, this is a person holding onto a victim mentality. Uh, Also try not to judge, but, you know, there's a reality to things of like, if something happened seven years ago that many other people experienced that they didn't get traumatized by, like, you know, there's something here, right? It made me think like, what is it that has one person uh, be fucked up from an experience and has another person not be fucked up? Um, Compared to some of these people I I spoke to, I was pretty, I was okay, right? I, I, I dealt with some stuff. And I ended up being okay, But then I also thought about the flip side because I've had friends who um, I've I've met people who are just harder than me. Right. Uh, Like in the David Goggins sense of the word, like they've actually a lot of my friends who uh, uh, have had businesses similar to mine or things like that. I don't even need to compare life situations, but like they just can like deal with stuff. And like when I would say. Uh, share my emotional turmoil they'd be like why is that a problem just like do this like or do that like they didn't understand they couldn't under they couldn't even they couldn't empathize not because they were being dicks they just couldn't understand why I was being such a little bitch to, to some stressor and it made me think so there is a scale of toughness right there's some people who can deal with huge amounts of stress and be totally fine and there's some people who deal with a small amount of stress and it, it messes them up for years and I was curious like what is this and you know I, I think mostly from a subjective um, like psychological perspective, right? Like, oh, is this person holding on to a victim mentality? Is this person in an environment where it's being normalized to be weak? You know, that kind of stuff, master-slave morality. But I also started reading this book that I mentioned in a few recent podcasts, The Hour Between Dog and Wolf by John <laughs> Coates, um, where he goes through the uh, nervous system and endocrine system experiences of dealing with stress. And basically throughout his book, he shows in different ways how toughness or the ability to endure stress is physiological. And I've, I've been finding this so fascinating, kind of starting with my my study of strength training um, into into this book and, and hormones and stress, how so many of our what would seem like subjective experiences, mental and emotional experiences can actually be measured with real physical markers like you could actually there actually is a measure for uh, thriving in quotes, which is becoming a biological term. Uh, you can actually check uh, how good you are at thriving based on, um, based on certain uh, physical markers, which I thought was fascinating. So I just wanna say, I'm referencing his book throughout this episode, but all the conclusions here are my own. Uh, so toughness, the, the, the definition we can use is the ability to endure and thrive under hardship, right? A tough person can deal with stress, can uh, deal with an event that some would consider traumatic and then not only deal with it, but laugh through it. Like, you know, when we think of, uh, I've been speaking about humor in a few recent uh, episodes, Indiana Jones is a great example. He can laugh while a boulder is chasing him or whatever, or when a Nazi is trying to cut his head off, right? Uh, Being able to thrive and feel good under stress. Um, And if, you know, we go back looking at like, let's say the, the episode I did on getting off on every stroke, um, there's something different about being able to relish in uh, relish in a stress uh, stressor, and one of the definitions of toughness is that a, a tougher p- person, when dealing with a stressor, will welcome it as a challenge, will welcome it as an opportunity to advance themselves. Whereas an untough person uh, will see a stressor as a as a threat to their survival, or uh, they'll assume it's going to harm them. <clears throat> and um, obviously, there's a continuum to things like. Even the toughest person would probably uh, uh, register a threat if like a lion was like biting on their leg or something. And, you know, obviously there's a continuum to things, but the more tough you are, the more you can welcome a certain stressor than uh, contract against it. Referencing Sedona method a bit. Another definition uh, and the one that I think is most interesting for our purposes of creating a fulfilling and quality life is that a tough person can deal with threats pre or semi-consciously, meaning you're not really thinking about it without having the emotional distress. And we'll, we'll explain how this happens through the body. So, so for example, you know, whether it's a physical threat or a perceived physical threat, I mean, um, John Coates throughout his book is comparing uh, the stock market to um, threats that hunter gatherers would experience because our, our nervous system reacts the same way. You know, a guy will see his uh, stock portfolio plummet. He has the same panic response as if, you know, uh, he's being chased by, by some physical threat, but a tough person, their body, your body can deal with the threat without having to get to your emotions. And we're actually going to show the, the separation between reflexes, emotions, and conscious thought. So I'm going to read this quote by John Coates because it's very, you know, just describes what we're talking about. A toughened individual welcomes novelty as a challenge, sees it as an opportunity for gain. An untoughened individual dreads it as a threat and sees it as nothing but potential harm. Uh, in there, there's a little, we're also uh, re-reference the winner effect, um, where there's something about uh, a tough person relishing in threat, you know, rel- relishing in... Um, Relishing a challenge is like, oh, here's an opportunity to advance my position. If, if you if you saw the master and slave episode, a master morality slave morality episode, and nobility, lambs and eagles, uh, the master or the person in the predator archetype sees every every new event as an opportunity to gain, grow, uh, to eat things, as opposed to fearing anything that's novel. <clears throat> the important thing here is that there. Be- There is certainly a genetic component to um, toughness uh, and certainly early childhood conditioning affects that, right? If you grew up in a traumatic childhood environment, you may overreact to things. In fact, you know, I don't really, yeah, I'll just say like, you know, someone who is prone to addiction with substances or activities, um, it could be a self-soothing mechanism for um, a lack of safety in their childhood life, right? And all of this has happened way before now. And it's, you know, you can't go back and change the past necessarily. However, no matter where you are, no matter what age you are, if you have the consciousness to watch an episode or listen to an episode like this, then you can actually train toughness in yourself because if you can condition untoughness, you can also condition toughness. First, we wanna understand the stress response. So there's three parts of the stress response. I found this really fascinating. Um, especially just from a perspective of understanding how instincts work. So there's first the reflex reaction. So I didn't I didn't actually know this until the book, but when you when you perceive a threat, your body, your amy- amygdala, can send a signal to your muscles to react long before you, you have an emotional response or a, certainly by a conscious response. The reflex reaction um, happens in milliseconds. it's pre-conscious so obvious reflex reaction it's like you're driving um there's a pothole that you didn't consciously see but in the last second you see it and you and you swerve and they are like oh shit there's a pothole wow I, i missed that or probably maybe more more commonly uh someone jumps out in front of you wasn't there wasn't enough time to consciously perceive it and consciously react but somehow you swerved and only afterwards you're like oh shit like wow i'm glad i missed that guy good reflexes um this is the reflex reaction reflex reaction Obviously, if you can have a, uh, an effective reflex reaction, very often you don't even need to have an emotional response or stress response beyond this, right? Um, if a caveman is walking around and he almost falls in a hole, but his body likes, you know, flinches and moves in away from the hole, he doesn't need to fear falling, right? He, he completely avoided the, the stress. He doesn't have to uh, worry about that. But not all, and it doesn't require any conscious thought, right? It's a it's a reflex that happens within milliseconds. Uh, in sports, we see this all the time. This is where people can like uh, in baseball, uh, the shortstop can dive for a catch, you know, in in a, at a speed where there's no way he could have consciously seen the line drive. Or uh, batting is actually a better example. There's no way for the conscious mind to process a 90 mile per hour fastball in time to hit it, but a well trained batter can have the reflexes to process it and make an educated guess of where the ball is, even though he can't consciously process it. When it comes to a lot of threats, uh, that quick reflex isn't enough. And actually the quick reflex uh, takes a lot of energy and it can only really be done, it, ne- it needs a uh, support from the organs in order to do it again. So this is where we have what we call the visceral reaction. This is where your organs support your uh, muscular uh, effort with certain chemicals uh, such as amines, adrenaline would be uh, one that you, uh, uh, I'm sure have heard of, it gives you that boost, right? So like you flinched because you, you're you in the jungle and you saw a lion, you avoided it snapping at you right there, or you know, maybe you were ambushed by uh, enemy barbarians and, and you, you flinched and missed the poison and the poison dart missed you. But now you're like, oh shit, there's still a threat here. Like I didn't, I, I missed one arrow. But there's still a threat here you need that adrenaline for that huge boost of energy the adrenaline um, uh, breaks down your glucose stores so you have a lot of energy so you could do something you have extra strength this happens uh, at a much higher time frame it's still faster than we can consciously perceive this happens from one second a little less than one seconds uh one second to minutes that's about as long as this like adrenaline dump can last and for instance if uh if you've had a close call driving you've experienced this before your your reflexes uh, keep you in safety but then maybe a second a couple seconds later your heart starts racing and you know you're feeling this adrenaline dump of like oh shit i just had a close call at this point you've already passed the threat the threat isn't there but now your emotions are essentially catching up to the threat that just happened just in case right because your body wasn't sure if you were going to hit the person or not or if you're going to be in a car accident your emotions catch up um This initial emotional reaction this is the part that i I found so super fascinating your initial emotional reaction then is what signals your conscious interpretation so for your conscious mind it's all happening at once right because your conscious mind is the slowest of these uh of these reactions you're having the reflex reaction uh you have an emotional reaction to support the reflex reaction and then your conscious mind gets the signal from your emotions of of interpreting what happens and that's where we interpret our feelings And, you know, there is a subjective aspect to this of, like, how you frame a situation. You know, um, a lot of, like, NLP or common cliche self-help is based around, like, reframing situations, reframing uh, uh, stressors as, you know, I get to do this thing rather than I have to do this thing. That's one way we do it. But also, you know, this is uh, through various studies he mentions in, um, John Coates mentions in his book, how a lot of times our conscious mind makes an educated guess based on the signals we're getting from our emotions, from our body, but it's often not correct. And he had uh, one example or a couple examples, I think of stockbrokers who uh, their hormone levels were very accurately reflecting the volatility of the market, right? Like if the the market was super volatile, they had tons of stress hormones and it was like one-to-one, like almost perfect correlation, their stress hormones could read the volatility of the market. But their interpretation of whether or not they were stressed or happy was completely all over the board, right? It kind of depended on a lot of things because the conscious mind, it actually isn't very good at, at accurately determining why the body feels a certain way. Maybe a positive thinker is like, oh yeah, I feel great, this is excitement. A negative thinker having the same exact stress response is like, oh my God, uh, you know the stock market is gonna crash, things are terrible. Um, I thought this was interesting to note. But as far as dealing with threats, this visceral reaction can only last so long and adre- adrenaline only lasts up to minutes at most. And if you're still under threat, so using the caveman example, uh, or the, you know, I don't know, tribal person example, a poison dart, you just miss it. That's the reflex reaction. Adrenaline, you have to run away from this enemy tribe, but it, they're, just, they're still chasing you beyond your adrenaline dump. This is where your body has to go into uh, its emergency reserves. With the cortisol response, preparing for the long siege. Now we're going to speak about cortisol quite a bit, uh, but cortisol. So actually, I just want to say, the first two reactions—the reflex reaction, the visceral reaction—no matter what, no matter who you are in the situation. Let's say uh, predator and prey, <laughs> or attacker and victim. Let's say those two first experiences are basically the same. Uh, the lion and the gazelle have a very similar visceral reaction. Not exactly. I mean, predators have more noradrenaline uh, compared to adrenaline. We spoke about that in the predator-prey episode. Um, but basically the difference between a predator-prey is who's in control. And the visceral reaction is the same regardless, for, for the most part, I should say. But the difference is the only the prey has this extended cortisol response because the prey is not in control of their situation. Predators are in control. So like if the lion... Uh, has that adrenaline boost, but misses the gazelle. It's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll just chill. Right. I'll, and maybe the line at worst, the line is hungry, but the lion is in control of the environment. The lion is in control of the stressor. The lion's is not going to keep chasing a gazelle when it absolutely feels like shit. Maybe if it was starving, it's a little different, but like it, it has control. It can, it can take its foot off the gas. It can take its finger off the, you know, the situation. Um, if it has to, the gazelle doesn't have that option. The rabbit doesn't have that option. The, um, The traveler who's being attacked by marauders doesn't have that option. They do not control the stressor. They have to have a cortisol response if that stress is still coming at them. Uh, The cortisol response can last minutes to days and it is the most expensive of all of the responses. So the idea is like uh, burning the furniture in your house to keep warm. Um, The extended cortisol response happens when your body's like, oh shit, we are gonna die. Um, our first, uh, our reflexes and our adrenaline, our adrenaline boost didn't help. It's worth it to to tear down, tear down our structure, tear down our being to survive. Because if you are a prey animal and you are, you have a threat to your survival, you no longer have to think about longevity. Right? There's no benefit to uh, having a reserve so that you can um, procreate or that you can uh, have a thriving life tomorrow. If an animal, and a bigger animal is going to eat you today. So our cortisol response, extended cortisol response, I should say, once it gets to a certain point, is basically tearing down our body um, for for immediate survival, which uh, feels shitty. So um, this this list is in order of expensiveness. Uh, Reflex reaction is not expensive. The bristle reaction has some expense to our body. The extended cortisol response is very expensive to our body. Tougher people can rely less on the expensive response system. And we're actually gonna speak the most about this middle uh, situation, the visceral reaction. But first, let's uh, understand the last reaction, cortisol. So cortisol is a catabolic steroid, which we'll explain in a second. But cortisol is not a bad thing. We, we often speak about it in terms of it being a stress hormone. It's true, but even stress isn't a bad thing. Um, cortisol allows for focus. Uh, it increases in response to new situations. This means good new situations or things you perceive as good or, or negative situations. Um, it's actually been noted, certainly as we would expect, after an event like divorce or a family member dying, um, cortisol levels increase. But also cortisol levels increase when a baby is born and marriage, right? These are, these are positive experiences for, for most people. But cortisol also increases, but we don't experience that typically as a negative thing. Because especially when it's within a reasonable range, a moderate range, and combined with dopamine, which we get from um, seeking uh, rewards that would uh, benefit our our future survival, uh, it leads to a high. And in fact, I'm drinking some coffee right now. Coffee coffee, uh, increases your cortisol levels a little bit, right? That's why a a certain amount of coffee feels really good. Too much coffee makes you anxious, which is uh, you having too much cortisol in your body for it to feel good. In high doses, as we mentioned, cortisol damages the body. So I'll speak about what steroids are. Um, steroids, because cortisol is a steroid, steroids are hormones that activate the entire body for archetypal moments. Uh, archetypal moments is a term uh, that Coates uses in his book. I really loved it because obviously I like speaking about archetypes, but uh, I love the connection here. Um, in his definition, archetypal moments are these moments where everything in your being has to deal with the situation. It's like, it's the reason for life, right? So fighting, fucking, and reading the news. That's an anchorman joke, uh, whatever. Um, these are moments where your body it has to have everything on the same page because survival and replication is the reason why our bodies have developed the way they are. This is obviously not the, uh, this is not the medical definition or the biological definition of steroids, but it's what we need to understand. Um, steroids can permeate cell walls in a ways that other hormones can't. And what's, uh, what's most uh, specific about steroids is that they can affect gene expression. Um, if we think about steroids, we're usually thinking about anabolic steroids, steroids that athletes will use as a performance enhancing drug. If you follow um, say the uh, trans women competing in, uh, competing with cis women in let's say the Olympics or, or any sport, one of the arguments against it is that a trans woman who's gone through puberty as a man has had a huge amount of testosterone during their developmental years, has developed a bone structure and l- amount of muscle mass that no cis woman can possibly develop. And that's why it's unfair, right? Uh, steroids can affect your gene expression. Steroids include testosterone, and anabolic steroid. I'll define what that means. Cortisol is a catabolic steroid. Um, estrogen is also a steroid. Um, these, are, these are things that when there's a high presence of them over a long enough period of time will affect the structure of your body. So what does anabolic and catabolic mean? Anabolic means uh, it builds up reserves for future effort. Um, Anabolic hormones can include steroids like testosterone. Uh, Human growth hormone is also an anabolic hormone. Um, Catabolic hormones deplete reserves for immediate survival. Uh, Adrenaline is a catabolic hormone. Cortisol is a catabolic steroid hormone. Um, as, As we mentioned, the reason for a catabolic hormone is that you have some immediate need. E- even drinking a cup of coffee, there's a small immediate need for focus, right? Or, you know, that's that's the effect that we get out of it. It's breaking down our reserves a little bit. And actually, um, in Chinese medicine, uh, there's a saying, coffee takes tomorrow's energy for today, which is one of the arguments against coffee. But you know, subjectively, we know this experience, right? There's, there's, if you drink a lot of coffee or a long period of time, there's certainly negative effects, but it gives you that great feeling and focus right now. It's a catabolic, uh, it's a catabolic effect via cortisol. So uh, we wanna look at this idea of thriving. So thriving, this is uh, the definition created by Bruce McEwen. Um, thriving is when you have more anabolic hormones than catabolic hormones. This means that your body can quickly rebuild. Uh, And if your body has more anabolic hormones than catabolic hormones, you don't necessarily need these prolonged um, stress responses uh, for the reason we're going to describe in a second. Basically, your body can uh, rebuild after stress in a way that um, it wouldn't if you had more catabolic hormones. One of the reasons why anabolic steroids are taken as performance-enhancing drugs is that it allows one to build muscle mass uh, and uh, and recover at a level that is Uh, beyond natural, right? Uh, I mean, it just, it it adds to your recovery ability, adds to your ability to to gain muscle mass and strength and uh, force output by building up those reserves. So we go back to the stress response here. Um, That's the extended, that's, that's cortisol we just spoke about, but really what determines toughness is the second piece, the visceral reaction, organ supporting that initial reflex response. So Amines, uh, this is just a layman's definition. Amines are a class of uh, chemical, and the ones that we care about uh, are dopamine, adrenaline, and noradrenaline. Serotonin is also produced by amine-producing cells, um, but it's not something that's uh, relevant exactly to our our topic on stress. So the amines that we care about deal with threats. So you have your reflex reaction, uh, amine-producing cells produce amines, to uh, give you that boost, right? So there's adrenaline, gives you the boost of energy. Dopamine, uh, I've spoken about a lot. I did that episode with uh, Cam Sapa and dopamine fasting. It's uh, pleasure from reward seeking. Uh, you know, addictive behaviors are, are basically uh, behaviors that are linked to this reward seeking part of our brain. Um, and noradrenaline is responsible for various things, but one that we care about is aggression, which is why I spoke about ad- noradrenaline quite a bit in the predator versus prey episode. But you only have uh, so um, you have a limited supply of amines or a limited uh, supply of amines that your body can produce at a given time. And when dopamine is depleted, uh, we have this experience of anhedonia where nothing feels interesting or good. It's like can' it's hard to feel motivated by anything when you're out of dopamine when your dopamine receptors are uh, are trashed. Adrenaline, when you run out of adrenaline and there's too much adrenaline, uh, you ex- experience extreme fatigue. Um this is something that, in sports, is sometimes called the adrenaline dump. I was watching this video recently. I watched a few videos uh, on jujitsu tournaments because I did my first one back in December, and uh, they are speaking about how if it's especially if it's your first tournament, you should do a very long warm up, like do a way longer warm up than you think, because a lot of guys will try to you know they'll try to not waste too much energy in their warm up. What happens is you get the adrenaline dump, and by the time you uh, get on the mat you feel super exhausted. And I actually felt, I noticed this, uh, I had four matches in that tournament. My first match, I was super weak. Like my muscles felt super exhausted. I felt super crappy. But then my later three matches, which I should have been more tired for, I actually felt a lot better uh, because I got past that that phase. Um, I don't exactly exactly know what happened in my body, but something with replenishing of hormones perhaps. And noradrenaline, when your noradrenaline is um, depleted, that's where we experience learned helplessness. So I'm sure you've heard of the idea of learned helplessness um, before when you're in a situation where you just, I mean, despite multiple efforts, you're getting no results. Eventually one gives up in psychology. This is mentioned often with the example of um, training fleas or in self-help circles, they speak about this you of training fleas, if you put fleas in a jar with the lid on it, um, they can't jump past the jar. Eventually you can take the, the lid off and they won't, they won't even try to jump past the jar. Another example would be like with baby elephants. If you train a baby elephant or you have a baby elephant tied with a rope to a tree, when it's a baby, you can't, it can't can't break out of the rope. When it's an adult, it definitely can break out of the rope, but it has learned that, oh, I can't, I can't break rope, so it doesn't even try to break out of the rope. You can put a, a thin rope around the neck of a giant elephant and it'll just stay there. Learned helplessness, and this this occurs when we run out of noradrenaline. Uh, we no longer have that aggression, and noradrenaline, as we mentioned, is tied to the predator uh, predator nature. It's the idea of feeling in control. It gives you the feeling of being in control, right? When you're being aggressive, you are initiating the stressor, which is why, I, um, you know, when I spoke about uh, I'm gonna speak about this more in, a, in the psycho, in a episode of psychogenic libido, but when I'm advising a guy who say say has a psychogenic sexual dysfunction, right? gets in his head in bed, can't get it up. One of the things I often recommend is that make sure you're still initiating based on your desire. Because once a guy gets in his head in the bedroom, sometimes he becomes super passive and then like puts him into prey mode. And then he, like, no matter what, he's not going to, he's not going to feel arousal. Whereas if you, if you initiate, if you step into tension, if you're the one who knocks, so to speak, it signals to your body that you're the predator that you can, and then your hormones uh, kind of catch up. Um, our bodies and our, our actions are often covariant. So, tough people have more powerful amine-producing cells, meaning uh, their amine response is a lot more effective and a lot more uh, powerful. Like they can produce more amines, so they can deal with a threat before going to the cortisol uh, response. So, just going back to these three parts: um, if your second, if your second part of your stress response is really effective, it's really good at dealing with the threat. It, um, you know. Let's say your adrenaline boost is so powerful that you know you get attacked by marauders, but you just whip out your your nunchucks, so you're throwing knives, and you, and you throw them and you destroy them all in a few minutes. Then you could go back to relaxation, and you don't need the cortisol response. Or if you're uh, super good at getting away from the lion, you, you run up a tree or something, because if you're really effective adrenaline response, you don't need to have the cortisol response. Um, oh, the one of the examples that's maybe more relevant to real life or modern life in the book is. Um, Uh, Coates speaks about about a a fictional veteran trader who during uh, what is a fictional situation, but I I think he was uh, kind of alluding to the 2008 crash. Um, This veteran trader, he has a very effective amine response. So he can basically maintain a cool head while watching the stock market crash, right? He doesn't have to go into that extended cortisol response because his amine producing cells are so effective. So what I thought of with this is kind of like, I just learned about this uh, with, um, is Israel's Iron Dome, like their anti-missile force, it's it's, su- it's such a powerful defensive threat that as soon as like a rocket uh, gets shot into Israel, this Iron Dome can like blast it out of the air, so it never actually affects the land, right? I don't care about the political side of Israel-Palestine, or not that I don't care, but not what I'm talking about here. Just a, as an image, you know, this is essentially what a powerful aiming response is. It can deal with the threat so effectively that it never actually affects your home turf. Um, and as I mentioned uh, in Coates' book, uh, some of the really powerful amy response doesn't need to have an emotional response. And he spoke about other veteran Wall Street traders where their hormones will react to bad news in the stock market or, or volatility in the stock market uh, very accurately. Like there, he was actually tracking um, the hormone levels of different traders during different uh, actual financial events. And the veteran traders, their hormones would be going crazy in response to the market But their emotions would actually be, you know, it's like their their bodies were so effective at dealing with bad news that their emotions never had to register it, which brought this really interesting quote that I had to, you know, share because it's interesting. Um, Coates wrote, physiological coping and emotional stress seem to be alternatives. If your body is coping, why get upset? Which is really fascinating, right? Like if your body can handle the bad news or the threat physical threat or the mental threat, whatever it is, there's no reason to get emotionally distressed. Emotional distress is actually a reaction for when your body can't handle the news, right? When your body can't handle the stress. So to bring it to maybe a more common example, when we think of stress. I'll just use, uh, approaching women as an example, the natural or the guy who's very uh, comfortable with women, his body has a reaction, right? Like, uh, you know, or it occurs in public speaking too. Like, you know, if, if a man goes up to a woman and he's attracted to her and there's a chance of rejection, even if he's the most confident guy in the world, he'll probably have some visceral reaction. His heart rate, heart rate will increase, um, blood vessels will dilate. He might have a little bit of adrenaline, but he perceives it as feeling good because he, he has enough of a response or he's comfortable enough that he never has to go into that cortisol response, which, which is what causes the emotional distress. The guy who's really bogged down by approach anxiety does the same thing, but he depletes his adrenal, his adrenaline, uh, his amine-producing cells can only go for, go so far. They become, um, they become depleted. So his adrenaline's gone, his dopamine's gone. He feels, uh, he loses motivation. Maybe he becomes apathetic or anhedonic because of that. Um, and he goes into the stress response where now he's fearing his survival. And then if the rejection comes or even before the rejection comes, he's already so contracted Fearing uh, this negative experience, that um, that now he's in emotional distress, obviously. Whereas the tough person doesn't need that emotional distress. <clears throat> so anyway, it's the last bit, the last bit of science before we go into practical application. I think it's the last bit. We might have one more slide, which is something called the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is part of the parasympathetic nervous system, which we speak about actually in all my courses. If you speak about. We strive for parasympathetic dominance, which is the feed and breed uh, autonomic, autonomic nervous system, as opposed to fight or flight. Parasympath- the vagus nerve um, parasympathetically controls the heart, the longest and digestive tract. It's essentially the nerve of soothing. So actually the, vag- the vagus nerve um, has, had, has uh, evolved to have different functions uh, throughout the course of the evolution of life. First is the freeze state. And this is something that I believe, I, I have to actually fact check this. I put this on the slide, but I believe all ver- vertebrates have this freeze state in the, uh, via their vagus nerve. I know reptiles do. The freeze state um, slows metabolism. Uh, I actually saw this recently. Uh, every time it rains, uh, these big toads or frogs, I think they're toads, show up in my yard. Uh, my puppies often will try to like, will rush to them to attack them. But then the frog or the toad will immediately become absolutely still. And I've even like poked at the frog to see if it would move. And like, no, it's absolutely still. It's basically, uh, it's it's vagus nerve, uh, I believe, is going to a freeze state. It's a defense mechanism of like being as still as possible. So the predator doesn't see you. There's other applications in uh, like, let's say seals, Uh, their vagus nerve activates so they can dive really deep into the freezing ocean. um, Serving oxygen and obviously withstanding the colds, and it basically slows down your metabolism, uh, which is a soothing experience. And even in in prey animals, this freeze state allows animals to um, uh, have an analgesic effect, where they don't feel pain if they do get eaten while they're frozen. They don't feel pain, and sometimes it can actually cause the the um, the metabolism to slow down so much that it causes death. Um, This is something that occurs in bunny rabbits often. Um, bunny rabbits can be frightened to death. And I mentioned this with uh, my, my beloved rabbit, King Bowie, died a couple months ago. We're not sure how he died, but I'm pretty sure he saw a predator, probably a street dog, and got scared to death. Like bunnies very rarely die of die feeling pain. They usually go into shock and then they basically kill themselves out of fright. This is all to avoid negative experiences, but there's also the experience of voodoo death, uh, which is a phenomenon that's been noted where people, I mean, it occurs with people typically who really believe in something like voodoo, a spell is cast on them that's really convincing. It really convinces the person that they're about to die and their body experiences the news with so much stress, their vagus nerve actually causes them to freeze to death, essentially. Uh, Everything, their body functions shut down um, out of fear of this experience and it actually causes the experience. The second stage or the second uh, function or the ability, let's say, of the vagus nerve is only um, available to mammals, which is known as the vagal break. This, uh, in the same way, slows the heart, but slows the heart in a way that is preparing for the fight or flight experience. So the freeze experience is that first experience that reptiles have. The vagal break is like Prior to a stressful event, it'll actually slow things down in preparation of speeding up. So it's kind of like um, revving up an engine before, uh, you know, releasing the clutch. Um, and it's to prepare for a strong fight or flight. So John Coates mentioned that with the tough trader in, in uh, seeing the early indicators of the 2008 stock market crash, the toughened traders... Their, their heart rate actually slowed down in preparation of having to deal with the threat. Um, and actually this made sense of a lot of my, or some of my sports experiences. Excuse me, I got the hiccups. Um, I spoke about, I, I mean, sorry, all right. as a boxer, I had four fights, uh, four amateur bouts. Uh, first two, I spoke about in other episodes, they're not really relevant, but my third and fourth fight, I really remember my experience before the fight. It was really interesting. It was my third fight. Uh, by this time, I'd kind of given up on my fantasy of being a pro boxer. Um, so it was very low pressure. I also happened to do, I mean, I was less hardcore about my training. So I actually let myself rest, which I didn't do during my first two fights. But I remember um, in the pre-fight uh, checkup, the, you know, they check, your, they check your vitals and stuff. My heart rate was the lowest it's ever been. Now, at this point in my life, I was doing a lot of cardio and stuff, but my heart rate never really got lower than 55 on on the best day. And I was kind of compulsively checking my pulse all the time. So I I knew. But this day, right before the fight, which should be a stressful event, my heart rate was in the high 40s. It was like 49, I think. And uh, I remember the, the doctor was like, oh, your heart rate's really low. You must be really calm. And I was like, wow, I can't believe that right before a fight, I'm the calmest I've ever been. And I remember like, I wasn't sleepy, but I, in the, in the dressing room, I was like, I could, I could just like, I'm so relaxed. I could sleep right now, even though I was also nervous at the same time. It was like an interesting experience. And in that fight, that was like the best fight I ever had. Uh, when the fight started, I came out like a bat out of hell and I, and I TKO'd him in the second round. It was very satisfying and awesome. And I still remember feeling like a level of power that I had really maybe never felt in my life. It's maybe a silly example, a silly uh, anecdote thing, but um, my my boxing trainer, you know the the ring girl comes out and gives you a trophy, gives the winner a trophy. And my boxing trainer yelled out, "Kiss the ring girl!" And I actually reached over and kissed her, which was whatever doesn't really mean anything. But at that period of my life, I was so I was so anxious, I was so socially anxious that that was so out of character for me. But I had such a high, perhaps from the winner effect, from a surge of testosterone or an effective vagal break, um, effective amine uh, response, that I was able to do it. And it's funny because the next the next morning. I was like, man, I can't believe I did that in front of all those people because it was a big crowd. Anyway, um, whereas with my fourth fight, very the opposite. I did not train very well for that fight. This is actually right after I did um, my first summer at OCS for the Marines. So I kind of just took this fight on a few days notice thinking, oh, I'm a tough guy. Let me Let me just like have a fight. I don't need to train. And somehow, even though my mind was very hopped up on hubris, My body knew that I was going to get my ass kicked because I remember like in the, in the many, in the, all the days before the fight, because I took it on very few days notice, my heart was pounding so hard. And even like, I was trying to do all the positive thinking and like, you know, psyching myself up, but it's like my, my heart, it, it actually felt just like what happens when I drink too much coffee. And I actually think my, my body knew that I was fucked. My amines were depleted. And I was already in a cortisol response days before the fight. And I I ended up getting my, not only did I get my ass kicked, I I couldn't ever get it going. It was like, it's like I had no energy for the entire fight, which I think was uh, something of my amines to being depleted. I was already in a cortisol prey response uh, prior to the fight starting. So anyway, um, the third part of the vagal, the third vagal stage, if you will, is a particularly human thing, which is diplomacy. Um, when our vagal, vagus nerve is activated initially, what it tries to do is it slows down a speech. It makes better eye contact in an attempt to avoid the need to fight. Now, obviously someone who's really not tough or f- someone who scares easily, this stage is very slow, very small rather like uh, this stage, like their diplomacy ability. If, if someone's really intimidated by people in a certain situation, their diplomacy ability dies off. So going back to like, like the approaching women example, Um, a really untough person, a person with poor vagal tone, which we'll define in a second, uh, they lose the ability to slow down their speech and have good eye contact. And as I say this, I I recall how I always speak too fast. I don't know if that has something to do with my vagus nerve. I was an excitable person, I don't know. Um, But certainly, you know, in 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 a socially tense situation, the more confident people can maintain eye contact better. Whereas the person who's going through a stress response loses the ability to make eye contact they lose the ability to speak at a normal uh, uh, pace. And they go, uh, they go into these lower levels because uh, we all, our bodies attempt to use the higher, uh, the more evolved abilities first. So if diplomacy fails, because if, you, if your diplomacy efforts work, you don't need to fight, right? If you can, you know, soothe the situation, get the barbarians to like take a couple of trinkets and not kill you, no reason to fight or fight, uh, f- fight or flee. Um, if not, then you have to go into fight or flight obviously, And if that doesn't even work, you might as well freeze and go into a voodoo death so you don't feel pain when the barbarians hack you to bits, for instance. Um, So as mentioned, poor vagal tone. This is a a term created by Stephen Porges, um, which is essentially your vagus nerve is not very toned, it's not very effective. So you overreact to stressors and this drains your energy reserves too quickly. So you can see whether we're speaking about the, the endocrine system or the nervous system, there's this common theme of like a tough person, their, their early efforts deal with stresses, deal with um, threats quickly so that you don't have to tap into your reserves. An untough person taps into the reserves way too soon and they end up feeling shitty and it ends up wearing them down because the extended cortisol response, that extended catabolic steroid eventually wears the body down and weakens the body Uh, It makes you feel shitty. So that was a lot of science. Here's the practical application. How do you actually train toughness? Um, And I'm checking the live stream. I know we have a few minutes of, or maybe it's like a minute of delay. If anyone has any comments, I will uh, keep checking or any questions, I'll keep checking to answer them. Um, So how do you actually train toughness? The first thing, and a lot of these things might actually seem, or actually maybe stuff you've heard before, but I'm going to say them all because they're, they're true and effective. And perhaps you haven't thought of them as something that actually physiologically makes you a tougher person. This first one being social stability. So the, uh, you know, a lot of people speak about the importance of connection, but actually this has been shown that it actually affects your ability to thrive physiologically. Remember thriving is, uh, th- the thriving is defined as having more anabolic hormones in your body than catabolic hormones, meaning your body is uh, more in build, more able to build up even after um, a stressful uh, immediate, uh, immediate response, right? So you may have heard this before or perhaps intuited <clears throat> that an extended stress response is correlated with mortality. People who are under long periods of stress die earlier. And that makes a lot of sense. Your body is breaking down earlier. Um, everything. Um, yeah. I mean, you're, people who are under stress, people who are in prey mode, people who are low status, they tend to die earlier. Uh, nature kills you off faster, which is maybe a harsh way to put it, but it's true. However, this was found to not be true for people with stable support systems, people with uh, family they can rely on, uh, really close friends they can rely on. Even when under stress, it did not increase their rate of mortality or their likelihood of mortality. Because uh, as we mentioned, uncertainty and novelty increased cortisol, whether it's positive or negative, it increases cortisol. And as we've been pointing out, extended presence of cortisol breaks down the body because it thinks you're about to die. <clears throat> familiarity familiarity uh, decreases cortisol. And as social animals, having social familiarity is a huge part of of feeling uh herd security we spoke about that i spoke about this a few episodes in the social constructions of reality episode and i really explained it in um the prometheus rising episode that uh, this is the this is the second circuit the emotional territorial circuit which is primary goal is herd inclusion right as pack animals we are safer when we're with a, a with a group and our physiology represent um reflects that the second part of the that, that circuit is it tries to achieve higher status because the higher status you are in a group, the even more safe you are, typically. Um, which brings us to this third piece, which is status affects your co- testosterone and cortisol levels. <clears throat> uh, our steroid hormones, testosterone, cortisol, and estrogen, all have the same precursor, all have the same precursor chemical uh, known as DHEA. Uh, I mostly speak about this in terms of testosterone and cortisol. Uh, Since they use the same raw material, this chemical, uh, this uh, molecule, DHEA, if your body's producing a lot of cortisol, it's using up all the raw material for testosterone. So we can, you know, just conceptually see that testosterone is the uh, hormone of dominance, of masculinity, of aggression, of uh, competitiveness, both physically and emotionally. Cortisol is the loser response, is the prey response. It's that of stress, of getting away, of, of fear. And, and John Coates uh, gives various examples of this in the book of that when traders testosterone is high, they are irrationally exuberant. Uh, a lot of bubbles are caused by um, he, he, his one of his arguments is that there's too many young men on Wall Street, their testosterone spike too high. They, they make these irrational moves, which causes like uh, um, an uh, unnatural level of market growth. And then of course, there's a crash, whereas cortisol, in his words, is the hormone of um, irrational pessimism. When our cortisol levels are high, because we perceive a loss, we think everything is worse than it is, which is, you know, the experience most of us are trying to avoid. <clears throat> so one way to train a better amine response so that you don't need uh, to go into cortisol into your cortisol response, you can preserve your DHEA for testosterone is cycling, tension relaxation. Essentially, this is the do hard things thing that Joe Rogan and many other people uh, speak about all the time. And it's not just about experiencing stress. It's about choosing to experience stress. I mentioned this in the, in the master-slave episode. People in their master archetype are choosing. What they do for fun is initiate stress. They go hunting. They go attacking. They invade another uh, civilization. Whereas people in prey mode, they're always reacting. Like the stress comes to them and they don't have any choice in it. So it's, it's a powerful signal to your body that you initiate tension uh, because you're in predator mode, right? Like the lion chooses when he wants to go after the gazelle and therefore he also chooses when he wants to relax. Predators control stressors. They uh, control the initiation and the relaxation. So some simple ones, and you, you see this in every life hacking list of things to do. Uh, physical ways to uh, initiate tension, and then therefore relaxation, is something like cold water exposure or cold, cold temperature exposure. Um, this stimulates the vagus nerve. And actually um, Richard Dean Speer, I hope I got his name right, who is uh, a researcher who's researched toughness quite a bit, and a lot of uh, our current uh, understandings of toughness come from him. Uh, he, he says that the ability to thermoregulate directly correlates with emotional stability. So there's another reason to be taking cold showers and doing the Wim Hof thing or whatever, ice baths. It actually is training your nervous system to uh, be more emotionally stable, to have a better amine response to stress. So you don't have to go into cortisol. However, this means that you stop before depletion. Uh, same thing with strength training. Um, and I'll say this, I don't think I made a slide for this. I, I'll actually I'll speak about this the next slide. But strength training, if you really wanna develop strength training, you actually don't wanna uh, train till failure. I'll explain why in the next slide. And then there's the emotional side of things, right? Most of our threats in, in modern life, in the first world are not physical, but they are initiating things that still trigger that stress response in our body, the hard conversations escalating in a way or putting your desire out there, I should say, in a way that you can be rejected. These are things that cause emotional tension. Um, I'm just gonna check the other screen, okay. These are the things that cause emotional tension. And if you are initiating that as a positive signal to your, uh, to your nervous system and your endocrine system. But you have to stop before depletion because if you deplete your amines, you go into the cortisol response. Which brings us to the winner effect, which I've spoken about in many episodes. When you initiate uh, a challenge, it actually doesn't matter if you initiate, but if you perceive a challenge and you succeed at the challenge, your testosterone spikes. There's the flip side of a loser effect. Whereas if you lose a challenge, uh, your cortisol spikes and your testosterone depletes. Also your dopamine spikes with the winner effects. And this combination is what makes winning feel so good. And the, uh, and the long-term presence of testosterone in your bloodstream stimulates your body to produce more androgen receptors so that you can have a bigger um, behavioral effect for future testosterone, which is uh, uh, this quote that I love by Dr. Charles Ryan, success breeds success on the molecular level. If you practice winning, you become better at winning right? And if you look at people who are say, naturals when it comes to sports or to socializing or anything, you know, there could be a genetic component. Maybe they're born with a lot more androgen receptors, but they're also, they had to be in an environment where they had the ability to experience real challenges and have the the opportunity to succeed. This is very different than participation trophy culture, which gives a person a reward, but your physiology, even if you feel good mentally or emotionally, your physiology knows you didn't actually experience stress and it actually uh, reduces androgen receptors, which is why people who uh, were raised in a participation trophy culture usually suck at dealing with stress because they've never actually had to deal with it as children. Which brings us to the strength training principle that I uh, I've wanted to talk about, but I mean I'm not a strength training guy, so I didn't I didn't really know where to put it. Um, I, I follow I follow Pavel Tsatsoulin and Strong First uh, and their philosophies quite closely. Um, and they recommend for strength training, you don't want to train till failure. If you want to be a bodybuilder, then yes, you want to train till failure. But if you're strength training, you want to train your nervous system to successfully complete the movement, whether it's a snatch or a press or whatever. Instead, you want to experience. You want to train high volume rather than max intensity, where you obviously have to fail. You don't want to train your body to fail because that's putting you into uh, into your later uh, systems of breaking down, uh, basically uh, catabolic experiences of breaking down your reserves, which uh, is my mini nerd thing on strength training. There are three ways that our our cells um, replenish energy. Our our cells are able to produce energy through something called ATP, androgen triphosphate. Uh, Very briefly, uh, when it shoots off one phosphate and becomes androgen diphosphate, there's a release of energy but to replenish it so that we could do it again, there's three systems that allow it. There's the creatine phosphate system, uh, which is a clean burning system. where is say, uh, let's say you could do 50 pushups. You can max out of 50 pushups. Your first 10 probably feel really easy because you're just running on cl- uh, creatine phosphate. There's no uh, there's no burn. The third system, the slowest system is the aerobic system. So if you max effort on pushups, let's say, uh, then you'll try to catch your breath through. I mean, your heart rate will increase but it's very slow. Like the aerobic system doesn't help you in the moment, right? Uh, When we think of aerobics, we're thinking about slow, long cardio type things. In between our clean burning creatine phosphate system and our very slow aerobic system is our lactic acid system, which bridges the gap. And that's where if you're say doing push-ups after maybe 10 or so or whatever your creatine phosphate system can handle, uh, your muscles start to burn. That burning is not good, right? And one of the, one of Pavel's arguments against something that's called metabolic conditioning, which um, I'm blanking on the word. What's the people, CrossFit. What CrossFit people do is that, uh, you know, the metabolic conditioning, the Metcon idea is that you want to train yourself to deal with failure better. But he's saying that actually um, increases the area where your lactic acid is producing, which is all to say that is damaging your body lactic acid burns and it feels bad because it's actually damaging uh, your soft tissue. It's acid, it's burning. It's it's literally burning stuff in your body. Instead, um, the strength principle is to train your body right up to the point of burning so that it becomes more effective with that initial clean burning system, which is creatine phosphate, which I'm bringing all of this up because maybe you find the strength training principle interesting, but also this is exactly the same idea as we're talking about with dealing with stress is that if you can train your clean, uh, your less expensive systems to deal with threats immediately and you can practice being good at that, they can handle more stress. Your amine producing cells can produce more amines to deal with the stress immediately, just like the Israeli iron dome so that you don't have to go into damaging the country, uh, so to speak of the extended cortisol response which makes you feel shitty. Uh, yeah, just read this quote, success breeds success on the, uh, on the molecular level. So you wanna practice winning, pick doable challenges and do them. It's okay to fail sometimes, but you wanna pick things that don't, it's not, it shouldn't feel like you're pushing against the wall. It should feel like you're pushing a weight that you can feel satisfied after completion and give yourself as many opportunities to complete. Um, a practical uh, thing here is uh, picking process goals Which is a bit of a challenge. You can do like four to five days a week. I write two to three hours a day, which is actually maybe not a lot compared to someone who considers themselves to be a professional writer. But to a lot of people, it seems like a lot. I've spoken to people who want to be writers, and they're and they're like, and they they want to do anyway. I'm not going to go into this whole thing, but I start. I got to that point where like it's actually fun for me to write three hours a day. It's it's more fun than doing most other work activities. But I started with 30 minutes, and I moved up to four to five minutes and then an hour. And like now I don't even really get into the groove until after an hour. Like it's actually fun because I practiced winning and my ability to win without having to tap into my reserves got better and better. Which brings us to his next principle of changing activities before fatigue. Fatigue, we can interpret, is a sign of depleting amines. Even with boredom, same thing, right? Like I, I speak about the importance of cultivating a high attention span. I think everything is better in your life if you have a high attention span. But if your attention span sucks, uh, maybe you probably didn't actually make it to this point in the episode. If your attention span sucks, it uh, doesn't mean you shouldn't challenge your attention span, but it's okay to stop when you start to get bored we, we can't concentrate anymore, but you want to keep just like with strength training, you want to keep increasing the volume. You want to keep practicing uh, paying attention up to that point of boredom. It's kind of like up until the point of lactic acid production where your body is starting to feel shitty. You don't want to push through that too much. There's times you may, you, you want to do that, but you don't want to push that uh, push yourself through that too much because that puts you into your, uh, into your emergency reserves. You want to practice making your initial, uh, defense systems better. And another analogy would be like, um, you don't want to get to the point where you have to conscript the citizens of your land, right? Like that's that's emergency mode. You want your standing defense force, your standing army to be very good at dealing with threats. So you never have to conscript the populace, right? Cause that would damage the economy. All right. Um, so anyway, which brings us to, I think this is our final principle to deal with threats immediately and quote, unquote, violently. Uh, so this is the whole idea of eating the frog killing the invader, if you feel an impulse where you know there's tension, you're best off doing it right away. Answer the email right away. Don't let yourself think about it for days because enduring those long drawn out worries, signal to yourself that you're a prey. And I know I'm guilty of this too. You know, I sometimes like there's something on the computer I really don't want to deal with, but I know I have to do it and I put it off for a day, but that that entire day is still in the back of my mind. And I don't know if it's really producing cortisol in me, but uh it feels shitty certainly whereas if you have that immediate response you deal with the threat immediately you're encouraging a more effective amine response to deal a threats so you never have to go into cortisol mode handle the threat before you need to prepare for a long siege uh, to use that actual analogy if invaders are coming to your walls and you sally out and destroy them the way that um Roose bolton did to uh Stannis Baratheon, when he was uh, preparing for the siege, if you watch Game of Thrones, there's a, the line uh, uh, from, free in the names of the people, but the guy, uh, Stannis Baratheon's advisor is like, I don't think there's going to be a siege, sir. Because they see all the horses of the enemies uh, coming in, they basically wipe them out. There's no need to prepare for a long siege because they went out and attacked the threat. Same thing with anything in your life. If you have something that you know is causing you stress, attack it, You know, deal with it so you don't have to think about it again because your hormones will thank you. So to recap, I know there's a lot of science here. I actually kind of, I don't know if I'm going to make a PowerPoint for every episode, but um, this was fun. Recap. Oh, actually, I want to say, if you are listening to this, I should have said this in the beginning. If you're listening to the audio version being off your screen, like good boys and girls, um, I will post the slideshow of this in the Masculine Underground group. If you're a woman listening and you can't access the Masculine Underground group, you can email me and I will send it to you. I think that's a reasonable thing. Um Actually, I might actually send it out to my email list uh, with the length of this episode. Uh, so to recap, uh, toughness is determined physiologically by your nervous and endocrine systems. It's actually something that can be measured to a degree. Uh, if you get your body to deal with threats more efficiently, instead of tapping into reserves, that's essentially the definition of toughness. And the more you can do that, the less you have to go into distress, Essentially, I mean, all the tips that I mentioned can kind of be summarized by, uh, well, one, have stable systems, but also if you voluntarily do hard things and voluntarily rest before you're depleted, you're training your nervous system, you're training your endocrine system to be better and better at dealing with stress. So you can be, you can be the giga chad who uh, has some shit happen and keeps a cool head. Your hormones will respond to deal with the threat without your emotions having to uh, suffer, essentially you are the one who knocks. Uh, So thanks for watching. The slideshow to this, uh, I will email out to my list if you're, if you are on my list already. I'll also have it in the Masculine Underground Facebook group at forum.masculineunderground.com. We have a men's group on Sunday and I think we're going to do it probably every other Sunday or maybe twice a month. Um, And you can check that out in the Masculine Underground Facebook group. We have one this coming Sunday, if you're watching this in the recording or listening to the recording and that Sunday has passed, I will eventually put it up on masculineunderground.com slash group. That's that's uh, not an active URL yet, but it will be very shortly. All right. Well, thanks for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, I'd appreciate the subscribe. If you're listening on some podcasting app, I also appreciate the subscribe. And of course, if you've been on your phone for a long period of time, please get off. All right. Goodbye.